If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 4 this morning. Romans chapter 4. Several years ago, Mother Teresa passed from this life into the life to come. And at that time, there was a great outpouring of affection and appreciation and praise for her life, for her attitude and what she had done. Uh, For those of you, probably most of you know that she gave up a life of safety and comfort to work among the poorest and the sickest people in India. In fact, so saintly was her reputation that now any who seemed to be above the moral fray of others, either real or imagined, or someone who sacrificed as much is actually called a Mother Teresa. Who can doubt where she will spend eternity? A year and a half later, the infamous serial killer Ted Bundy was executed for dozens and dozens of murders across multiple states. He was despised by many, many more families and communities in this country. The afternoon before his execution, he was allowed to meet with the Christian counselor, James Dobson. And as part of an interview, he made two striking comments. When he was asked if he deserved the punishment he was about to experience, here's what he replied. Quote, I don't want to die. I won't kid you. I deserve certainly the most extreme punishment society has. I think society deserves to be protected from me and others like me. That's for sure. End quote. Later, Dobson asked him about the news that he had heard that Bundy had actually turned from his sins and trusted in Christ. Did he draw strength from this in these final hours? Bundy replied, quote, I do. I can't say that being in the valley of the shadow of death is something I've become all that accustomed to and that I'm strong and that nothing's bothering me. It's no fun. It gets kind of lonely, yet I have to remind myself that every one of us will go through this someday in one way or another, end quote. Though he requested no pardon, though he believed he deserved the execution he received, many questioned Bundy's claim of conversion. More than that, many Christians wondered if it was even possible for a man like that who had committed such brutal, terrible crimes could ever I really find forgiveness from God. These contrasting stories, if taken seriously, force us to think carefully about what we believe, not not just in an abstract sense of doctrine somewhere written in a book, but where we live right here and right now. Can someone who lives such a terrible, wretched life be forgiven for all that he has done? Can someone who lived such a good life, such a sacrificial and humble life on the last day still not be accepted into heaven? Having looked at the previous three chapters of the book of Romans, we arrive today at Romans 4 where these issues are dealt with directly. In chapter 1, Paul introduced himself and his purpose in writing, laying out the case that Gentiles have failed to worship God as they ought. In chapter 2, he drew his sights on his own people according to the flesh, the Jews, and how they had also failed to worship God rightly. In sin, they trusted not simply on God's mercy for salvation, but a mixture of of his mercy and their own works to bring them to God on the final day. Then Paul went on to bring both groups in chapter 3, Jews and Gentiles, all humanity together, and shown that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that there is none righteous, not even one. But then he ends chapter 3 with good news. Rather than striving or having to strive for our own righteousness before God, God himself has provided a righteousness for sinners in need of salvation. Chapter 3 ends with this glorious truth. The righteousness of God comes by faith in Christ, 
not by any working that we will do. And this is true for all people. So in verse 28 of chapter 3, Paul said that no one is justified apart, that one is justified rather, is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And it is that specific teaching, that verse, that truth that he's going to pick up and explain now in chapter 4. He wants to show the truth that everyone, Jews and Gentiles, are justified not by works, but by faith alone. Follow along as we read his argument, as I read his argument in Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. May God bless the reading of his inerrant and inspired word. As the title of the sermon indicates, this chapter is all about God's justification of sinners. Why does he do it? How does he do it? But before we get into those questions, probably a more fundamental question needs to be answered. What is justification? What, what does that word mean? 
Well, it's a word that comes from the law courts. In biblical terms, it's God's legal declaration of our status before Him. That we are condemned before Him for our sins, He declares us to be righteous in Christ when we put our faith in Him. And it's important to remember that justification is different than sanctification. Justification is our declaration, God's statement that we are righteous, though we are not And sanctification is the actual transforming work whereby God makes us to be righteous before Him. Both blessings spring from Christ, but must be kept separate lest we misunderstand God's saving work. In light of these things, we can summarize Romans 4 and today's sermon like this. Through faith in Christ alone, all people are justified before God apart from any work that they do. That's what this chapter is about. And although there's an outline in the bulletin to help us see Paul's explanation in this chapter, there is really only one point and one application from this chapter this morning. See the gospel of Christ in justification through faith alone and believe. That's it. That's what we want to accomplish in the next several minutes before us. We want to see how the unrighteous can be considered righteous before God in Christ, and but we need to believe that promise of blessing for ourselves. Perhaps believe for the first time and receive forgiveness of your sins or be- continue to believe. For the better that you understand justification by faith alone, the more you will find the roots of your faith deepened. What will the results be? Strength to withstand the accusations of the devil and others, assurance to fight off the insecurities of your own heart, and humility to forsake boasting in ourselves that we might give glory to God. Well, chapter 4 begins by showing us, first of all, the freedom of the justified. The freedom of the justified. What is the freedom that justification brings? Simply put, we aren't doing works to earn our salvation. We are justified by faith apart from works. The reason why that's so important that Paul has to hammer home, not just for his Jewish uh, writers or readers rather, but also for us today is because we almost seem hardwired to think that God will accept us more if we do good works for him. That somehow he will come to love us in a saving sense all the more, or perhaps it's one or the other. He won't love us at all unless we do good works. And Paul wants us to understand that that's just not simply the case. That's not something new that he himself is coming up with. He did not invent the doctrine of justification by faith, but in fact, he points us back to Abraham in the Old Testament to show how this has been God's plan from the beginning. In fact, his whole argument revolves around this man, Abraham. Now, do you remember who Abraham was? For Israel, he is the physical father of the entire nation. All of the Jews can, if they had the records, trace their descent all the way back to Father Abraham, who had many sons. But here's the thing. When we read in Genesis 12, Abraham was not a godly man. Just the opposite. God chose him and called him out from among the pagan peoples of the world. He was a descendant of Noah, preserved through the flood, but he was an idolater. And God called, revealed himself and called him out of that idolatry to serve him, the one true and living God. And Abraham followed after God. He answered that call. And in Genesis 15, God made a covenant with him, promising to bless him and his descendants through the entire world, throughout the entire world. And we're told that Abraham believed God, that he trusted him. And as a result, he obeyed him. But the order was confused in Paul's day. 
In the mind of the religious leader, the religious teachers of the Jews, Abraham obeyed God and therefore he was justified. And so Paul has to say, no, 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 that's not the order of the text. That's not actually how it happens. To give you some idea about how people thought, though, there was uh, a rabbinic commentary on the Old Testament called the Book of Jubilees. And there it says this, Abraham was perfect in all his dealings with the Lord and gained favor by his righteousness throughout his life. So by his righteousness, he gained, he earned God's favor, God's blessing, God's grace. According to them, Abraham was righteous and therefore blessed by God. Furthermore, a couple of centuries before Paul's time in the prayer of Manasseh, we read this. Therefore you, O Lord, the God of the righteous, have not appointed repentance for the righteous. For Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against you, but you have appointed repentance for me, a sinner. Now, on one angle, we think, okay, he's a sinner, he's humble, he wants to repent. But he totally misses the point. Somehow, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were righteous and not in need of repentance. They were never sinners. And what does Paul say in Romans 4? We've got it wrong. We didn't actually read our Bible the way that we should have. Abraham was not justified by his own righteous works, but just as with us today, he was justified by faith. He says in verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul quotes again and again and again, Genesis 15, 6, to show that God counted him as righteous, declared him to be righteous, not because of works, but through his faith. Do not confuse the gift of God in justification with something that we earn by our works. Justification is not a wage, it is a gift. So J.D. Crawley in his commentary says that we should imagine a company that gave its employees a special bonus every year at New Year's. But one year the economy was bad and the company didn't give out the bonus. The employees got angry and held a demonstration demanding the bonus. That sounds like America, doesn't it? Interestingly enough, he's writing to a Southeast Asian culture, so that makes it all the more interesting. But that's us, right? We get this gift. One year we don't get the gift. What do we do? We didn't get what we deserved. You don't deserve it. It's a gift. That's the point. It's not your wage. It's not your paycheck. It was a gift. They had confused it. And what does Paul say? Verses 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. We know that, right? To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Justification is not a, an earned wage from what you do. It is a gift from God. Paul's introduced Abraham to show that the new way of Christ, where justification by faith in his name is preached, is not something new. This is how people from the very beginning, all throughout the Old Covenant as well as the New Covenant, have been saved. Not by their works, not by their obedience, but by faith alone in the promises of God. Even King David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That is what justification brings. All lawless deeds forgiven, all our sins covered over and not counted against us. Why? Because we earned it? No. Because God was gracious and merciful. And in His loving kindness, He bestowed it upon us as a gift when we trusted Him. 
Now, justification is about more than just individual salvation, though. It is not less than that. Don't let anybody tell you it's not about individual salvation. It is. We just saw that. Blessed is the what? Blessed are those, the individuals, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins is covered. Blessed is the man, in case you missed it, against whom the Lord does not count as sin. Justification is about individual salvation, but it's not just about that. It's also about the community of faith brought together under one father, Abraham. And so that's the second thing that Paul shows us, the father of the justified, the father of the justified. Here, Paul's continuing his work of drawing together the Jews, the Gentiles, as the people of God. Remember, we saw in chapter 1, this is one of his main reasons in writing. He wants the Jews not to be boastful. He wants the Gentiles not to be arrogant. But instead, he wants them to come together seeing, seeing themselves together as the one people of God. One does not have a better end than the other. They are equal in Christ. And in these verses, he makes clear that both are part of Abraham's family. And he shows that, first of all, by pointing out the purpose of Abraham's faith. The purpose of Abraham's faith. Paul begins with this question. Is, verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is the blessing of justification by faith, of forgiveness, of having sins covered, is it only for the Jews or is it also for the Gentiles? Who can be justified by faith? And Paul says, in answer, remember your history. Remember your history. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness, not after, but before he was circumcised. You can go back and read it for yourself. Paul keeps quoting Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In fact, his entire argument is based on that pronouncement in the text. Abraham is justified in chapter 15 when God made the covenant with him. When does he get the, 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 the gift of circumcision? Chapter 17. That's like 20 years in Abraham's lifetime. Did justification come before or after circumcision? There is no doubt it came before circumcision. In fact, it was a sign of his faith. Abraham, he says in verse 10, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, justification by faith, this is what Paul is getting at, the righteousness, the blessedness of having sins forgiven is not tied to circumcision. In other words, it is not tied strictly to the Jewish faith. That's the point that he's making here. It was meant to confirm, document, ratify, and authenticate in the words of one scholar the standing that he had with God by faith. Why did God do this? Paul says that the purpose behind this was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised, the Gentiles, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, the Jews, who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, being a child of Abraham is not about circumcision. It's not about your ethnic identity. It's not being able to, to get a cotton swab in your mouth and send it off to the online DNA place and have them come back and say, Jewish blood, you're a son of Abraham. That's not what it's about. It's about following in his footsteps, following the example of putting faith in God's promises. Therefore, being a child of Abraham, having Abraham as our father is open to Jews and Gentiles, to the uncircumcised as well as the circumcised. And even those who are physical descendants, it doesn't mean that they're actually children of Abraham spiritually. They too must put faith in God. Only then will they receive the blessing that comes from the promise 
of Abraham's covenant. This is the second thing we see here, the promise of Abraham's covenant. Notice the four in verse 13. Paul is continuing his argument, grounding it further in what the scripture teaches about Abraham and his faith, specifically that the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, if you know your Bible, if you know the story of Abraham, immediately you should have a question mark in your head when you read that verse, or as my four-year-old calls it, a mystery mark. There is a mystery here because nowhere in the Old Testament does God ever promise Abraham he would be heir of the world. So what is Paul doing? Paul is summarizing, I think, much like other Jews of his day, he is summarizing the totality of the promises made to Abraham. What were the promises? Three things. First of all, descendants numbering the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the beach through one sun. Second, the land of Canaan in which his descendants would dwell. And three, that all the nations of the world be blessed through Abraham. Now, once again, in Paul's day, many people summarize all of those things with, with kind of a, a global vision for Abraham as heir of the world. But what sets Paul apart from the rest of his fellow Jews? He believes that's true because of Christ. That in Christ, all the promises of God are fulfilled, making Abraham and those that are his children heirs of the world. How do we become partakers of that promise? Not by the law. The promise was given to Abraham long before the law was given to Israel. So no one needs to become Jewish to be counted as children of Abraham and the heirs of God. We do not keep the law in order to receive the promise. In fact, Paul says in verse 14, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. If you want to be a law keeper, great. But you're only going to get wrath in the last day. None of the blessings that come from the promise given to Abraham. For the law cannot save. The law cannot justify. The law cannot forgive. Therefore, faith is worthless and the promises are the same because no one will ever be able to attain them. You're never going to get the promises if it comes by law keeping. Rather, rather, if salvation comes through the promise received by faith, then God ensures two things. Number one, it's always by grace. It's always by grace. And number two, the promise is guaranteed because it's not based on us, it's based on God. If your assurance, if your certainty for the future is based on you or me or any other person in this world, we ultimately have a baseless hope. But if the hope is based on God, then it's certain. There's a certainty that it's going to happen. This leads us to see in the remaining verses the faith of the justified. The faith of the justified. In his commentary, Tom Schreiner helpfully points out that in these final verses, Paul shifts the emphasis from the fatherhood of Abraham to the kind of faith that made Abraham a worthy father. I like that. The fatherhood of Abraham to the kind of faith that made Abraham a worthy father. And so in verses 17 through 22, we see him as an example of faith. An example of faith. Why does Paul take the time to describe Abraham's faith? Because we cannot depend on our own ideas about what faith is in order, in order to be right with God. 
In other words, justifying faith is not just any old kind of faith. It has to be a certain kind of faith, the kind of faith that is exemplified in Abraham's life. Apart from faith like him, no one will be justified. Even as we think about Abraham as an example, though, we need to see why he is such a good example. In other words, it's important to see that Abraham's faith is so impressive precisely because his faith was always in God. It was a God-centered faith. What kind of God did he trust? Verse 17, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Think about that for a minute. God didn't just promise to bless Abraham's offspring. He had no offspring. God promised to create offspring that he would then bless. That's the kind of power that God is capable of. Though impossible for us to see the way in which God would work, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Abraham's looking around and says, man, I have no idea how he's going to pull this off, but I believe he can do it. I believe that God is capable, he is powerful enough to keep his promise. So he received the promise of God and he trusted that he was able to fulfill it even when it looked impossible. And so what kind of, what, so having that kind of God as the object of your faith, what does that faith then look like? First of all, Abraham's faith didn't weaken. It didn't weaken. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. I think there's probably a pun going on here. Though, though his and his wife's body were growing weaker and weaker all the time, his faith was not growing weaker. His faith was constant. His faith was steadfast. steadfast. Second, Abraham's faith wasn't marked by doubt. No unbelief, verse 19, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Now, once again, some of you know the story. Some of you have actually read Genesis. This doesn't seem to be right. We see him wavering. We see him doing stupid things like, hey, tell Pharaoh that you're my sister. That way he won't kill me. Really? That's what faith looks like? No. So, so, so how can Paul say this? Well, much like Hebrews chapter 11, Paul is looking back at Abraham and he's looking at the totality of his life. He's not looking at every individual moment where everyone's faith is going to waver to one degree or another, but what he is seeing is the long-standing pattern of an unwavering faith, a faith that is constantly on the move upward, the trajectory of life. And so this leads to the third thing that we see, and that is Abraham's faith grew strong. Abraham's faith grew strong. Verse 20 says, he grew strong in his faith. Now, how did he grow strong in his faith? Paul says two things strengthened his faith. First of all, he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. Isn't it interesting that not long before this in chapter 1, Paul said that failing to give God was humanity's fundamental sin. And yet, Abraham doesn't give in to that sin. He does just the opposite. He gives glory to God. He glorifies Him. The question is though, how does that cause His, or how does our faith glorify God? Well, when we put our faith in God, it shows our dependence on Him. And the more faith that we have in God, the more dependence we have on Him, the more dependence on have, we have on Him, the more glorious He is seen to be. If we're, only, if we're only willing to kind of put one, one toe on the plank and say, I'm not sure it's a little unsteady, you know, the, the, the plank doesn't get much glory there, right? 
But but if we kind of go woo, you know, and we're just bouncing up and down that thing, that that plank's getting some glory. We, it shows we think that thing is sturdy. How much more God? In in the midst of all kinds of circumstances in life, that things look absolutely impossible, we say, God, but you have promised to do this. And not just what I want to have happen, but chapter and verse, legitimate promise, this is what you've said you're going to do. And we grasp hold of that and say, God, I believe it. Doesn't that show God to be glorious? God, worthy of praise? Shriner is again helpful when he says this, the supreme way, the supreme way to worship God is not to work for Him, but to trust that He will fulfill His promises. Second reason why Abraham's faith grew strong is because he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You understand, Abraham was a man just like us. He, he's no different than us. There's nothing special about him. Uh, he was a rabid idolater before God called him to himself. And we need to understand when we think about these biblical characters and we just think, oh man, they had it easy. I'm not like them. I can never do that. Sure you can. Sure you can. Here's the difference. Abraham understood who God was clearly. That's what gave him strength to his faith. The reason why we don't have faith like Abraham is because we remain foggy on our understanding of who God is. We have not spent time digging into an even fuller picture of God from his word to create in our minds a God that is so glorious, so powerful, so all-pervasive that we cannot help but trust in him. Abraham only had a fraction of the revelation of God that we have, and yet he grew strong in faith. And the result was his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham is given as an example of faith to us, but then Paul brings everything together in the final verses where we see an exhortation to faith. An exhortation to faith. Paul says, but, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Ponder that for a moment. God's work in the life of Abraham, God's inspiration of Moses to record Genesis 15, 6, all of it was not just for Abraham or even Israel's benefit. It was written for our benefit as well. I often say that the Bible was not written to you, but it was written for you. And this is exactly what Paul is saying right here. The weight of all redemptive history moves from the fact that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then this fact in verse 24, it will be counted to us also who believe in him who raised from the dead our Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Just as God justified Abraham when he believed the promises back then, so now with the greater revelation of God's promises in Christ, he will also justify us when we put our faith in him. In Christ, we see the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham. He is the one true offspring through whom all the nations on the earth will be blessed. He is the King of Israel and the Lord of all creation. Thus in him, we inherit the entire world. As the fulfillment of all God's promises, Christ is now the supreme object of our faith. And when we put our faith in Him, faith like Abraham, steadfast, unwavering, growing, then we too will experience God's justification. Just as Abraham marveled that God could bring forth life, even a nation from His ever-weakening body, we should marvel that God can justify the ungodly. We should marvel that He can save the wicked. And then we should look to Christ 
seeing that he indeed was delivered up for our trespasses. That the sword of God's wrath fell on him in our place, though he was innocent and we were guilty. What's more, God raised him from the dead for our justification. Here's Paul's point. It doesn't mean anything if we don't believe it. It does us no good to see and to learn and to understand the precedent that God set and how he makes promises today of justification by faith unless we ourselves look to Christ, see in him the Savior that we need, and believe. In his book, All of Grace, the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon tells a story of an artist who wanted to paint a picture of the part of the city in which he lived. He wanted it to be accurate even to the the time period that the peace would outlive him. And so he decided to paint certain well-known people into the picture, people that everybody at the time would have known about. And one that he wanted to paint was an old street sweeper. In Spurgeon's words, he was unkept, ragged, and filthy, but known to everyone. So the painter met him on the street one day, and he offered him money if he would come to his studio and let him paint his likeness into the painting. The man agreed, and he came around in the morning. But when the painter opened the door, he was shocked by what he saw. The man had washed his face, he had combed his hair, he would put on a suit, and he had in every way made himself look completely respectable. And Spurgeon says at that point, the man sent the man home. What he needed was a beggar, not a gentleman. Likewise today, if we would try to clean ourselves up and make ourselves presentable before God, if by our good works, believing they would somehow make us acceptable to Him, Then we say, here I am, God, I'm ready for justification. I'm ready to be counted righteous in you. God will turn us away. God does not justify the one who strives hard in religious duty or moral achievement. God justifies the ungodly. Therefore, whether a nun or a murderer or anyone in between, all who would want to be right with God must look to Christ and to Christ alone for God's saving mercy. Only he who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification can bring us to God. So whether for the first time ever or the 50th time today, put your faith in him and in him alone for forgiveness and justification with God. Father, we're so thankful for these gospel truths that you give to us in your word. We're so thankful that It is not our works that we need to cling on to and bring before your throne, but Father, only Christ himself. Lord, we pray that our minds and our hearts would soak in these truths, that Lord, we would find immense freedom from labor, not that we would stop living a life of good works, but that Father, we would find much joy in doing so knowing that our good works are an evidence of our faith and our love and our acceptance with you, not our striving to be made right or acceptable before you. Lord, may we humble ourselves by receiving your gift and trusting you, therefore bringing you glory and honor and praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.